Well, for the last month or so, we've been in a series looking at the doctrine of union with Christ and how it answers modern lies of identity. And the lies we've examined are really, they're, they're all similar and they, they overlap in meaning, particularly as all of them are ways of being justified or affirmed or accepted in the eyes of whoever we think matters most. And it's typically not God. And it's why they're lies. We're looking for, well, it's like the old song. We're looking for love in all the wrong places. So the lies, I am what I own, I am what I do, are, are really versions of the lie, I am what people say about me. And these lies are destructive because they, they pull us away from God and who God says we are. So in, in our sin, these lies are enticing because we think we can be like God and have a, a self-made identity apart from Him. Well, this week's lie, it also deals with social acceptance, but instead of attempting to measure up or attain some, some sort of status, we know that we don't have it. We know that we don't have it. The lie is, I am my worst moment. And your worst moment could be some sin or mistake you committed, or it could be a sin or mistake committed against you. And because this lie is, is arguably more nuanced, perhaps more complicated than the previous three lies, we're going to spend two weeks with it. And this week we're looking at the lie in terms of something that, that we personally have done, as in I am my worst sin or perhaps I am my worst mistake. And to get at this lie, we're going to look at one of the most celebrated and I think notorious people in the Bible. That's David. So we're going to be using Psalm 51 uh, this morning. I'm not going to look at any one verse in particular. My hope is that you will go back and read it after this sermon and take your, your time with it and, and meditate on it. But this is David's response after he has been called out. In fact, I'll, I'll read the description. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, 
my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, there are only sinners here. Every last one of us sinners. And I am certain that there is not a person here who can hear my voice that doesn't have something in their life that they are ashamed of or embarrassed of or never want to see the light of day. So I pray for us here, sinners, that we might see how good you are and how kind you are and how gracious you are and how you continually pursue your people. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, through the Spirit. Amen. The lie, I am my worst moment, trades on the ancient heresy of Pelagianism, which teaches that original sin is not all that bad, and with just a little bit of help from God, coupled with our free will, we can be good. We can achieve moral perfection all on our own. It's what stands behind statements like, I believe humans are basically good. It's the few bad apples that are the problem. Or it's like when someone has witnessed a a kind or a, a charitable act and they say, you know, my faith in humanity is restored. But what if you are the bad apple? What if you are not guilty of one of the the socially acceptable sins, and they are legion, by the way, but instead have done something far worse, something everyone knows is wrong? It's like the movie Manchester by the Sea, where the main character, because of his drunken negligence, caused the death of his two young children, and he cannot move past it. Or the character Red in Shawshank Redemption, who at his third parole board hearing of his uh, 40-year prison sentence for murder does not, like he had previously tried to do, he does not try to convince the parole board that he's a changed man, but rather he expresses his regret over his stupid, youthful actions and in his, really his deeply ingrained cynicism, he's accepted that he's nothing but a murderer, and that's all he will ever be. And these men, they know. They know that they they can't change the past. They know they can't take back what they've done, or else they would have done it. And whether it was by accident or by intention, it hardly matters. People are in the ground because of them, and there's, there's no such thing as a mulligan. Now, on the flip side, for those of us not guilty of such sins. Not that we're sin-free. I mean, nobody's perfect, but it's not like we committed murder. We don't hesitate to condemn others by their sins, all while assuming our self-righteousness. And whatever that sin is, whatever that mistake was, we identify that person with it as if the moment, as if that moment and, and, and that person are synonymous. You are your sin. You are your worst moment. 
That's what stands behind Arthur Miller's devastating play, The Scarlet Letter. Instead of a letterman's jacket worn like a trophy you know, by an athlete, Hester Prynne is forced to wear the letter identifying her sin as a perpetual act of shame that she can never get over. Hester is her scarlet letter A, and no amount of contrition can remove it. And Scarlet Letter is about a fictional, puritanical New England town set in the 1640s. The reality of our 21st century cancel culture is so much worse. And even when you've successfully avoided heinous or, or public sins, the likelihood that something bad will dog you, like someone sinning against you, or some kind of traumatic event, the likelihood is high. And we're going to look at that and how to live in that and in Christ next week. But this week, we're looking at this lie in terms of our, our personal actions and choices, which takes us to David. Psalm 51, as, as we read it, is, is David's response to God, calling him out through the prophet Nathan for his sins against Bathsheba and Uriah. And the events that stand behind Psalm 51 are found in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And I'm basically going to walk us through it. I'm, I'm going to summarize it for us before we, we look again at Psalm 51. And there have been some who have interpreted 2 Samuel 11 and 12 as David's downfall as if Bathsheba was a temptress that David fell for, which in turn led him to murder Uriah, as if David is a kind of Samson and Bathsheba is very much like a Delilah. But nowhere does the text indicate that Bathsheba was to blame. Psalm 51, by, by David's own admission, indicates as much. No, the way Nathan, the prophet, frames his case against David is that he was a predator taking and consuming the wife of a less powerful man. 2 Samuel 11 tells us that it was the spring, the time when kings go off to war, but David stayed home and sent his, his general Joab instead. That's a bad sign. That's the way of the Hebrew author saying, uh-oh, things are not good. It was expected, you see, the kings would go fight for their people. And after all, Fighting for his people is what got David noticed as a teenager when he stood against Goliath when no one else would. David was a valiant, courageous military hero, hero who, who God had blessed with victory after victory all the way up to chapter 11. And for context with chapter 11, David is in his 20th year of his reign. He's been reigning for 20 years as king, right? So this is right at the midway point of his 40-year reign, and he's basically the same age as me. He's 49. Now, four chapters earlier, we read that God made a covenant with David, promising that one of his heirs would sit on his throne forever, ruling over all things. And what's more, God's steadfast love would never leave David's house. And by implication, God would always love David too. And to be sure, God immediately forgives David for what he did in this moment. Even so, 
It's tough to know what was going on in the heart of David, but it's clear that the warrior king, blessed by God, is not with his troops on the battlefield. And instead, he's taking afternoon naps in the comfort of his palace. So as he's strolling on the roof of his palace, this is post-nap, and his home would have been the tallest building in Jerusalem, he looks below into the courtyard of a house next to his palace and he sees a woman bathing and he, he sees that she's, she's very beautiful. And we are told that she was engaged in a Levitical purity ritual particular to women, which indicates that she was a good and faithful Israelite. Bathsheba is a good woman, keeping the law and minding her own business, while David is a peeping Tom. Though clearly David can appreciate her figure, he can't tell who she is. So he asks one of his servants about her, and the servant says, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of uh, Eliam, the, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So again, look at the context. At this point, David was roughly 49 years old. He's middle-aged. And personally, as a 49-year-old, Without contacts, and I'm at the point where I'm wearing bifocal contacts, without contacts, you know, I could see okay at a distance. You know, enough to drive somewhere safely for the most part. But at a distance, it's tough to determine someone's face. So I take my contacts out. I can read everything up close. I'm probably going to recognize some of you, but your faces are going to be a mess to me. That's David. It's why his servant responded with, isn't that Bathsheba? As in, you know who that is, David. And he did know. He did know. See, Eliam, Bathsheba's father, was one of David's 30 mighty men, part of his inner circle of elite, trusted warriors. Eliam's father, that is Bathsheba's grandfather, was Ahithophel, who was one of David's chief counselors. Or we might think of him as a cabinet member, member to David's court. So Uriah was roughly 10 years younger than David. And, and um, though a Hittite, he was a convert to Israel's God, most likely because of David's direct influence early in his reign. And as the text indicates, like his wife, Uriah was also a faithful and godly man. And the, the proximity of Uriah's home to David's palace indicates that Uriah was close to the royal court and well-known and trusted by David. You didn't get those homes unless you were known by the king, unless you were part in some part of his, of his retinue. Now, Bathsheba herself was roughly 18 or 19 years old, 30 years younger than David. By way of her grandfather and father, she most likely grew up in the royal court. And it's easy to imagine David not merely knowing of her, but having played with her and the other children of his inner circle, maybe even holding her and, and cooing at her as a baby. David doesn't strike me as a stoic sort of man. He strikes me as the kind of man that if there are kids in the court, he's playing with them on the ground. And he's wrestling with them. And he's like, oh, let me hold your baby. Let me see it. And of course, why wouldn't they be proud for the king to know their children? Or if they're proud for, please hold my daughter. 
please. So Bathsheba is not a stranger to David. And in turn, David is not a stranger to her. She's known and trusted him her whole life. Her whole life. Not just as a man she's known, but as the king. And as the leader of God's people. 2 Samuel 11.4 tells us that David sent for her and took her. It's a very quick statement, but there's a lot there. This is an intentional literary link to Eve that you can see being repeated all the way through Scripture. Eve looked at the forbidden fruit, found it to be beautiful, to be pleasurable even, and she took it. So too David here. Bathsheba was beautiful, but as David knew, he knew she was not available. Despite knowing God's law about sex and marriage, David already had seven wives, not including his concubines. At the end of his life, for example, some 20 years from this point, his advisors went looking for an incredibly beautiful young woman to warm his bed in order to comfort their great king. You know why? They knew his sin. How can we comfort our king? Let's give him what he wants. So David takes her, he uses her, and he sends her home. And some may say, but listen, okay, she doesn't fight back. She doesn't protest. She doesn't do anything. Well, okay, let's think through this for a minute. Who is the spiritual leader of Israel? David. Who was Israel's warrior king? David. Who had the power and the responsibility to protect people, just like Bathsheba and Uriah? David. We don't know what David said to her, but it's not hard to imagine that a man 30 years older than a teenaged young woman who knew her, who had power, fame, wealth, and the backing of God could apply pressure without violence to get what he wanted from Bathsheba. I mean, how do you say no to the king? I'm all alone here, and his servants have shut the doors. How do, how do you say no to the one who slayed Goliath? How do you say no to the one whom God promised an eternal throne, which everyone knew about? If I say no, what will this mean for my husband who's risking his life on the battlefield right now? And if you think you'd act differently, well, we can hardly resist the pressure of our friends, let alone someone who is wielding real power over us and our family. It's like those incredibly you know, romantic and delusional people who tell you exactly what they would do when threatened at gunpoint. Oh, I'd fight back. There's no way I'm taking that. No, no, no. There's no way I endure that kind of indignity. I'm sure you would. There's YouTube videos of you all over the place. I could tell you from personal experience, from personal experience with the bully who held power over me and my wife and children with my paycheck and forced me into silence that resisting power is not an easy thing to do, no matter who you are. How much more so when there's a 30-year 
age gap. There's a literal strength gap, and the man is not only an accomplished warrior, but he's the king and spiritual head of the people of God and who you've known your whole life. It's his word against yours. Who do you think people are going to believe? Again, if you think I'm making leaps or imaginative interpretations, then just read Nathan's rebuke of David. Nowhere is Bathsheba blamed. According to Nathan, David is no shepherd. He's a wolf in shepherd's clothes. And for good reason, our denomination's recent study committee on domestic and sexual abuse rightly sees the sort of thing David did as predatory and abusive, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And you probably know how the story goes. David attempts to cover his abuse by bringing Uriah home to sleep with his wife in the hopes of giving the illusion that Uriah is the father. It, of course, assumes that Bathsheba, in her shame, would want to cover the sin, too. When that fails, he decides the best course of action is to kill Uriah and take Bathsheba as his wife. And it's telling that that Bathsheba mourns the death of Uriah when he dies. That's not the actions of someone looking to cheat on her husband. No, she loved Uriah and was committed to him. So imagine Bathsheba. Her husband is dead. She's pregnant with the king's child. And at the end of the funeral, she is forced to marry the man who took her and killed her husband. What goes unspoken is that David not only made her a widow, he stole her future. I think that's part of the reason why David took her as as his wife, not merely to cover up his sin, but the second time he, he got her pregnant. I mean, their first child died. Think of that. Their first child died as a result of God's judgment on David. And in turn, David gave her a son and a future. And that son Solomon was blessed by God, I think that's purposeful, of course, as the promised heir to David's throne. And in turn, we don't hear about Bathsheba again for another 20 years when she reminds David of his promise to name a now 20-year-old Solomon to take the throne. You know, it makes me think, that after his lust and rush to cover his, his crimes had subsided, David recognized what he had done to Bathsheba. And so he set her up financially, and then he left her alone. Bathsheba was given a royal buyout that ultimately benefited her son, but it did not erase what David had done. You know, so it's worth asking, you know, what happened? You know, once you start to think about Psalm 51 in light of that, What happened to David between chapters 10 and 11? Well, we don't know, right? Because the text doesn't tell us. It doesn't give us a psychological account of David. But I'd be willing to bet that despite his his tremendous faithfulness and love for God, which were genuine, by the way, his God-given success and glory had become really self-serving hubris. And in turn, he, he removed God from all his headlines. Again, the text does not say this, but if David is like every other sinful human, it's not hard to see how he might have given in to the three lies of identity we've already studied. I am what I own. He's got the biggest house. He's got the biggest achievements. He's probably the richest guy in Jerusalem. And even though God gave him all that success, like so often happens, he begins to think of his wealth and his power apart from God. 
Thus he's not out with his troops. I am what I do. As it was famously sung about him, Saul, his predecessor, has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Look at how strong I am. I deserve this praise. I am what people say about me. I'm blessed by God. I'm the chosen one. I'm a good man. I could do no wrong. If God hadn't called him out for his seven other wives, Bathsheba makes number eight, let alone his concubines and the 20 or so official children he had by his wives, not including the unofficial children from his concubines, what's one more? What's one more woman? He's the chosen one. God's anointed kings, come on, kings will have their dalliances. And besides, the country is going really well. Do you remember how it was under Saul? It's so much better now. Surely we can just... We can overlook this one little indiscretion. You know, but David, by skirting his duty to lead his armies, had effectively removed the influence, the scrutiny, the accountability of trusted men like Ahithophel, Eliam, and Uriah, who were also related to Bathsheba. He was beholden only to himself. So even though David was chosen by God and had shown incredible courage and faithfulness and godliness, he had failed to guard his heart and in turn had believed the lie that his identity was rooted in something other than God, even as he was the leader of God's people. This happens to pastors all the time. All the time. And what's sadly ironic, and this this happens to Christians in general all the time, is that his false, self-created identity was rooted in the good gifts God had given him. Now, apart from God, apart from God, a person's typical response to their sin is either to dismiss it, you know, making justification for why it's not really sin or why they weren't really wrong or why it was fine that they did it or it's to inescapably identify with it. So the examples that come from the movies Manchester by the Sea and Shawshank Redemption are the latter versions of that. It's to accept that you cannot escape what you did and so you are that thing forever. You are your worst moment. And you know what? There is some truth to that. On our own, we cannot escape our sin. We cannot undo what we've done. And no matter how hard we may try to forget it, the facts are what they are. But for most people, the attempt is, is, is to minimize, is to minimize the sin or, or blame shift or pretend like it never happened. So in the case of David, he might have, if he was a typical king, he might have responded by appealing to his position as king or his assumed righteousness, or his covenant with God, and said, it's not that bad. It's not what you think it is. And besides, she didn't exactly say no. It felt consensual to me. Never you mind that Bathsheba didn't come knocking. She was summoned. Uriah died in battle, but he knew the risks. He knew the risks as a soldier. 
And as an aside, it's a typical move both among non-Christians and Christians to blame the victim of our sin. But there's a third move, and you get this with David later in his life. There's a third move, a third option that's, that's often attempted once we realize we cannot skirt our guilt. As, as Tim Keller often says, we tend to base our justification on our sanctification instead of our sanctification on our justification. So we, we mistakenly think that if we apologize or we, we make amends or pay restitution or turn over a new leaf, those actions will somehow erase the sin and we will be in good standing with whoever. As kids like to say, at least I told the truth. At least I said I'm sorry. And while those things can be good, and we should do them, David knows better right now. He knows better. He says, what can he possibly offer God? Or by implication, Bathsheba or Uriah's family that will make up for what he's done. Do we honestly think that God is pleased by isolated good deeds as if it's replenishing our fictional karma bank account? No, good deeds are just what we're supposed to do. They don't gain you anything. What amount of money can replace Bathsheba's husband or restore the life that was stolen from her? No, our, our repentance, our making amends is in response to our justification. And that justification doesn't come from us. It comes from God alone. As David says throughout this, you cannot redeem yourself. You cannot forgive yourself. You cannot make your sin disappear no matter how easily we forget about it. He knows all of this. And once he's indicted for his sins against Bathsheba and Uriah, all of this is public, by the way. This psalm was a public psalm. The people of God sang this. His response is to turn to God and ask for mercy. Now, I want to encourage you, just take the time to carefully read through that psalm on your own this week. Only in a couple of places does David speak of acting better. And he says it will be that way because he has been forgiven and redeemed by God. And even then, for him personally, he will point sinners like himself to God only after he's been forgiven. And that's essentially what Psalm 51 does. No, David confesses that despite God's faithfulness to him, he had abandoned God. He had sinned against him and in turn destroyed lives. And nowhere does he indicate that, that he thinks life can go back to normal, to the way it was before uh, all this happened and God himself, well, he says as much. In the chapters that follow 2 Samuel 11, we see the impact of David's sin on his whole household. One son... Amnon, in a lust-filled, premeditated plot, rapes his half-sister Tamar, which was David's only, I suppose, official daughter. And another son, Absalom, Tamar's full brother and Amnon's half-brother, murders Amnon two years later in revenge for the rape. You know, family dynamics get pretty complicated when there's 20 or so kids by eight women. Amnon was roughly 20 at the time of David's sin, and clearly influenced by his father's actions. Absalom, after murdering Amnon, would later lead a failed revolt against his father, David. 
And by the time we get to Solomon's reign, 20 years later, despite his immense wisdom that he received from God, he makes David's lust and idolatry look almost tame or acceptable in comparison. And in turn, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, in his cruelty, splits the kingdom. So sin has consequences that we simply cannot fix. And it's foolish to believe that things can simply go back to the way things were. No, what, what David prays in Psalm 51 is for God to redeem him, to reconcile him to God himself, to cleanse him, to renew him, to put a right spirit within him, to teach him to sing and to worship and to deliver him from his blood guiltness. Apart from Christ, a person must deal with all of it, all your sin, all your misery, all your trauma on your own. If you are your own, if you're your own man, your own woman, if you are your own, if you have created this life, this identity all on your own terms, then you are on the hook for every last bit of it. So then a person must find a way to live with that shame and guilt, either trying to find a way to make it right or forget about it, you know, repressing those events or live as if it never happened. But it doesn't have to be that way. As Paul says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So as, as David knew really well, there's nothing in him that is righteous. No, his righteousness was not his own. It came from God as a gift. And effectively, union with Christ, as the Bible teaches it, means that Christ's righteousness is your righteousness. That's the scandal. Your sin was crucified with him, and in turn, his righteousness was given to you. Now, that doesn't mean that you are now righteous all on your own. No, you are righteous by virtue of the one who indwells you. So your, your old life, including your sins, past, present, future, are atoned for, and the new life has come to you right now in Christ. And some of you might be thinking, but listen, this is all great. This is nice theology, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. If you knew what I've done, you would not say this to me. And if it were up to me, you might be right. Of course, I, I could easily say the same about myself. But here's the gospel. I am not your judge. Praise God. I am not your judge, nor is anyone else in this room. Apart from God, everyone judges you. No, God has chosen to judge the world through his son, and his son has offered himself for us and to us freely. The scandal of the gospel, and this is why I think so many people shy away from it or have such a difficult time with it, is that it is very possible and I think this comes from Max Licato. Jim, Jim said that this morning. It is very possible for a heinous serial killer like Jeffrey Dahmer to be with the Lord right now. 
and a person like Mother Teresa, who did so much for the poor, not to be there. The difference does not rest on how good they were. Both were filled with sin. No, the difference rests on Christ alone. So does that mean then, like the character of Delmar in the movie, Oh Brother, Where Out Thou, who thinks because he was baptized, everything has changed? Does it mean that once we've been forgiven by Christ and received the Spirit that our lives are just magically transformed and all our problems go away? No. No. There, there are consequences to our sin that we may have to live with. We will carry scars and wounds of our sins in this life that may leave us with a permanent limp. So a man who comes to Christ on death row, for example, will still face the chair. The difference is that those sins and the consequences of those sins no longer have a hold on his future life. This life is not all there is. Though the world may define you by your your worst moment, God has freed you from it. For that death row inmate, because he's been crucified with Christ, the bars that constrain him in this life and the electric chair that will ultimately take his life do not have the last word on him. So who has the last word on David? His sin or his God? It is his God. Now what gets lost in the shuffle is Bathsheba. What about her? She was not only innocent, she was a good and faithful Israelite. What is her life after what was arguably her worst moment? How should she see herself. Well, we're going to look at that next week. I I do not know what you have done. Aren't you glad? I do not know what you have done or what you have endured at the hands of others. I don't know what your shame or your guilt is. I do not know whatever that thing is, that moment that dogs you, and you don't know mine, but God does. He does. He sees clearly to the depths of you. He knows what you have done. And without him, you will be defined by your sin and will have to account for it. It will dog you for your whole life. But in him, you have righteousness because you have him. You have him. He is with you, and he will never let you go. Let me pray for us as we come to the close. Heavenly Father, there is no God who loves sinners like you do. There is no God who so wants to redeem people like you do. All other gods want to use and destroy. You want to set free. You want to give life. You want to resurrect. Lord, we praise you that our sin does not have the last word, that we are not our worst moment. No, we are in Christ. That is who we are. Thanks be to you for that. We pray this in his name through the Spirit. Amen.